This is the last in the series dealing with ancient church history and the church is continuing to grow. Short review and discussion. I don't think we'll take time to discuss it right now, but I just want to remind you again, with the Edict of Milan by Constantine in 313, you had Christianity being legal. Later in 380, Emperor Theodosius said, everybody in the empire is going to be a Christian. The tables were turned from no one being allowed to be a Christian to now everybody, whether you uh, appreciate it or not, uh, you're going to be in church and like it. Okay, and so, um, and we said that, uh, used Lord Acton's famous uh, phrase about power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And then someone more recently said, maybe it's that true that power attracts corruptible people. But think about that for the church universal, the body of Christ particularly, but also for CBC. Think about it. Okay, the barbarians. They're called barbarians because they didn't speak Latin or Greek. And I added this uh, little comment right here about the scrolls. I'm going to talk to you in just a couple minutes about Alaric, the former Roman general who gathered up a lot of those wild types that, that you saw in the forest there and descended on Rome and actually invaded. Remember, these people couldn't read or write for most part. And when they got to Rome and were sacking houses and buildings and so on, they found scrolls, many of which were probably of the scriptures of the text, but not, you know, what good are these rolled up things? And they found out that they were really good for starting campfires. And so they just used them to burn. So, as I said, Alaric invades and sacks Rome in 410. This is a huge watershed event. I can't really put it adequately into words for our day and time because we're all pretty cosmopolitan. But I want you to think about the only known order for hundreds of years has been the empire. Rome was considered to be invincible. It's been this way for as many generations as you can think. At 410, Rome has been around for nearly a thousand years. All of a sudden, seemingly, the barbarians have descended and our, our legions haven't protected us. It's like waking up and finding out that the United States and everything you know about it has ceased to exist. Does that kind of convey the gravity of this, of what happened? So Alaric, Alaric comes. He um, is in 410. Um, he's a Visigothic warrior king. And notice the succession. In 410, he comes... Attila the Hun comes in 452 and Gesseric comes in 455. Bam, bam, bam. All right. So Alaric is this warrior king. He's lusting for power. He served the Roman Empire. He's born into an Aryan Christian family. Even though his 
followers, his, his legions of, of sort, came in, sacked the city, took everything that was movable. When they got outside, he had all the booty gathered, and he saw in there pieces from various churches and of a Christian nature. And he had his men separate that, and all of the things that were of a Christian relationship, he had them take it back in, into the city. And they could keep the rest. So that was Alaric. Now, too many church, unchurched, anybody, this was the end of the world. And they were right. It was the end of the Roman world. And not to be too maudlin about it, it accelerated the decline. The Eastern Empire would go on for another 500 years. Lots of people have written about why did Rome fall. There's lots of reasons. Edward Gibbon's famous decline and fall of the Roman Empire is one of them. But I'm moving now quickly from Alaric to Augustine because this is important. Augustine was born in in the country of what we know of today as Algeria in Africa. There's his dates, 354 to 430. Notice that he lived 20 more years after Alaric's invasion. He was educated in Carthage, and then he went to Milan, Italy. Then he went back to Algeria and eventually became the Bishop of Hippo. Hippo is a uh, geographical area in, in Algeria. We all, many of us know the story of, of Augustine, extremely sinful, extremely lustful. He had a devout Christian mother named Monica. Uh, she uh, had her, what we would say, her issues. She was very controlling, and that was a, a struggle in, in their lives. For a number of years, um, Augustine struggled with this internal lust and desire He had a mistress, he had a child by her, uh, who later became a a believer in his 20s. Um, He wrestled with his sin, and you've heard the famous quotation by him that said, Lord, make me holy, but not yet. Okay, and he just back and forth with that. In his quest, in his spiritual quest, he became an adherent of Manichaeism. Mani was a guy that lived in the 200s. He was from Persia, a quite uh, flamboyant kind of leader type. And Monarchianism was a mix of Christianity, Judaism, Zoroastrianism, and Buddhism, sort of just all mixed up together in this cult-like thing. And um, Augustine uh, was a follower of him for a number of years, but still was restless in his soul. We know the story where he was at home. He's struggling with this sin and what about it and what can I do? And I'm torn and I want to do good, but I can't. And I want to be different, but I can't. And the story is that by his own admission in his book, The Confessions, he says he hears a child sing song next door. It says, pick up and read, pick up and read. Sort of like, you know, hopscotch, one, two, three. And he hears this and there, there in the garden, 
was uh, the book of Romans, and he turns to Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, and reads it again, and the Spirit of God descends on him and, and saves him. Now, Augustine is one of the church fathers venerated by both Catholics and Protestants alike. Now, why are we talking about him? Well, because not only is he important in church history, but some important things happened right here. He writes the Confessions and the City of God. This is my copy of Augustine and nine-point print, narrow margins and fine lines. The City of God is 625 pages long. The Confessions is 137, I think. When he wrote Confessions, the significance of that is that it was the first spiritual autobiography that had ever been written. And the introspection and the perception that the man was able to develop just has baffled scholars and people over the years. Not baffled, awed. And in one way, you could even say it could be used as the beginning of what we know of today as psychology. I mean, it was just absolutely profound and it's the first time. You know, if somebody does something once, there can be a lot of copies. But if you sit down with a blank scroll and start doing something for the very first time that's ever been done in history, that is indeed admirable. Okay. Now, coming back now to Alaric, Augustine really pondered, here we are, Rome as a center of Christianity, but it's been invaded. It's been sacked. And shortly in a few years, it's going to be further decimated and, and uh, beaten. What does this mean? And for the first time also in history, you had somebody that wrote a philosophy of, of history as a response to the shock and the bewilderment of this invasion. And his book, The City of God, guided Christian theology for the following thousand years. That's who Augustine was. And his famous statement, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Right? Now, just something else interesting. The Donatists. Now, you can live the rest of your life without knowing this little detail. But it's kind of fun in one sense. The Donatists were uh, people in North Africa, and they followed a fellow named Donatus. And the Donatus were a Christian sect that got started under Diocletian, the Roman emperor that, in, uh, that really launched one of the all-out persecutions of Christianity. And a term was developed called a tratador. That's Latin. We get the word traitor from that. And that's someone who folds who collapses under persecution. And so you have some people who were martyred, 
some people who survived persecution. And then you have the Tratadors, who were people who, in, in fear or for whatever reason, recanted. They offered incense to the emperor or whatever. Well, Donatus was a churchman in Carthage. And to say the least, he was rigid and fervent. And anybody who's a Tratador is, you know, just really, really low on the Christian totem pole. But in addition to that, Sicilian is the bishop of Carthage, who himself is a Tratador. And he appointed a bishop named Felix, who was also a Tratador. And Donatus says this cannot be tolerated. So he began to have uh, wider and wider uh, influence, and he created a, a large following. And these folks were very much against the church, created a lot of havoc. And he said that the failure to remain true during persecution is unpardonable, and thus Felix and Sicilian are unfit to lead the church. And it was interesting, the Donatus symbol is not the cross, but the ark. Now, I put that there just to pique your curiosity just a little bit. Why do you think they would have liked the idea of the ark? Think back. You got the ark in the Old Testament, Genesis, what, 6? Okay. What's happening? The world is evil. Us few are the good guys, and we're in the ark. Going to the promised land, we're the ones and we're going to leave all the evil, sinful, bad people behind. Okay? So that's Donatus. Now, Augustine, now this is creating havoc in the church. And Augustine writes against it. And he says that the church is like Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13. Now, let me pause just a second. Any questions about that? Okay, <clears throat> the only little problem with that exegetically is that in Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares, he's not talking about the church, he's talking about the world. Okay, so even really smart guys can be kind of clever. All right, now, so later Donaticism uh, was declared heretical and Augustine's writing against them was very instrumental in declaring them to be heretical. Any questions, comments? All right, moving on. All right, monasticism. Let's talk about monasticism just a little bit. Wilderness. Judea, North Africa. How about let's have a CBC retreat back to nature Wilderness. Anybody ready to sign up? I think I think I think the elders ought to go first. All right. Not a very inviting kind of place, but just to give you some visuals. Monasticism began. Has some examples. Moses and the children of Israel. Isaiah himself says, "I'm crying out like one in the wilderness." John the Baptist and Jesus. Paul, following his conversion, was in Arabia. So the first monks went into the wilderness because they were fleeing persecution. They would go and live in caves, subsist 
and Antony of Egypt was one. He said, the mind of the soul is strong when the pleasures of the body are weak. Anthony lives on bread and water. He fasts every other day. He denies himself sleep to pray through the night and became an example to many. And he leads other ascetics. Athanasius, remember him? Remember Athanasius with Constantine, Council of Nicaea? Athanasius says that Jesus and God are the same. Arius says no. Athanasius was a bishop in Alexandria, and he writes a a heroic biography of Anthony. Anthony is just one of thousands of people who became ascetics, getting away from the world, retreating into that kind of environment. But these aren't just people that want to get away from life because they don't like their boss at work. These are people that are fervent, and they look to Jesus and Adam as models. And in the garden, Adam was with God, and there was no sin or gluttony or lust or the other kinds of sin temptations that we deal with. And so these folks that are seeking fervently and sincerely a close desire to be closer to God, they choose this desert life to be apart, uh, apart from the world for solitude, extreme fasting, starvation, kinds of pain. If I'm starving and I have pain with that, it rids myself of all the lusts and desires and evil temptations. It's part of their thought process. So celibacy without lust allowed the ascetic to sever attachments to worldly pleasures and arrive at a heavenly state of oneness with God. And it was sometimes referred to as a white martyrdom. Can you think of why? They wore simple linen clothing that was kind of an off-white color and referred to it as white martyrdom as opposed to a red or bloody martyrdom. Okay? There are many people who who were monastic ascetics. They wrote things. Sometimes... They would go into cities, they would preach, people would become believers because they were admired. We in heaven someday are going to see probably thousands of them that lived in periods of years in those kinds of environments. And they'll say, how about you? Well, I lived in a three-bedroom, two-bath house in Richardson. It was very comfy. All right, let's move on. The church is continuing to expand, and it reaches out toward the north and also to to the west. You have to wonder, in looking at the spread of Christianity, even though we think that the Apostle Thomas went to India, you have to wonder why did Christianity seem to predominate in the west, but not toward the east and I'll let you think about that but that's nevertheless the history let's come to Pope Gregory Pope Gregory sometimes called Gregory the Great these were his life he's a little over 60 years old when he died he did not want to become Pope even though he had ancestors that were Popes and he had other relatives that were high in the church 
he wanted instead a career in law and government. But he was what we would call drafted and declared pope. And finally, he said to himself, as he was a believer, I think God wants me here. And so with real zeal, he entered into the papacy. He was vigorous. He energized the papacy. It had begun to decline in, in these years. He consolidated the power of the church. And he defends the absolute authority over the church, saying that the pope is a servant of the servants of God. Now, did the church need reforming? Yes. And he did that. He was very missions-minded, and we'll get into that in just a minute. But sometimes zeal of us humans being what it is, not so good things or even evil things can be inculcated despite the good that we're attempting to do. And this is true of, in case of Gregory. We'll talk about some of the good things that he did, but one of the things he did was he established the papacy in Rome as the spiritual leader of the church. Okay? So let's move on. He was fervent for solemnity of worship. Anybody familiar with Gregorian chants of music? He's the one that did it. He also reformed our calendar, the Gregorian calendar. He was zealous for missions. In 596, he sends a different Augustine, the Augustine, the one we were talking about earlier, is long dead in heaven. But he sends Augustine and 40 monks to Britain. Now, so he gets these fellows together. It was a Bishop Augustine and 40 monks and says, I want you to go to Britain. They said, where's that? Well, we're here in Rome, and you just get on the road and keep turning left, get to the ocean. It's called the English Channel. Go across. That's Britain. All right, so they set out. It was hard. You saw what kind of terrain they were going to be traveling on there in in the video. They get out there a number of ways. They write back and said, this is too hard. This is true. They wrote back and said, this is too hard. We're coming back. Gregory wrote back, sent a high-speed messenger on a horse and said, no, you're not. You're going to Britain. And they went. Okay. So they got there in 596. And on Christmas Day, 597, Augustine has a mass baptism of 10,000 subjects of King Ethelbert in Kent, England. Now, were all of those 10,000 individual believers? Probably not. But pause here with me for a moment. Remember when Peter preached in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 became believers? That was a mass conversion. And if you look at the history of the church in some of these early Uh, invasions, if you will, of Christianity, there were these kinds of mass conversions. Many times the leaders 
would become believers and then their subjects were as, as well. Someday in heaven, you and I are going to be talking to some people and they'll say, yep, King Ethelbert was my king and I remember it as plain as yesterday. Augustine came and spoke and God did something to me. All right. But Pope Gregory initiated the conversion of Europe. Think about that. Imagine in France, the cathedrals, and in Germany, in Cologne. And all of that came about because this man had a vision. Was he a believer? Yes. Was he sinless? Absolutely not. Okay, just like the rest of us. So Pope Gregory initiated missions to Europe and England. And, of course, we have St. Patrick in Ireland and Columba in Scotland. Notice uh, Patrick is around 415 to 493, so this is the 5th century. Now, everybody knows where Ireland is, right? I mean, uh, that's being part Irish, that's essential for your knowledge, okay? You aren't educated unless you know that. Okay, so so here, here's Britain, here's Ireland, this is Northern Ireland. Right across here is Hadrian's Wall. And you have Scotland up here. Everybody know about the Ninth Legion of Rome? People sitting there, you know, blank stares, tell us. Okay, I'll tell you. <clears throat> we don't know what happened to the Ninth Legion. We know that they were stationed for a while in England. You see a list of the legions, they appear, and then in 165 another list of the legions comes out and the Ninth Legion is missing. What we think happened was they went up here to try to invade Scotland and they got wiped out. Hadrian, when he was emperor, said, okay, we're going to build a wall here and we'll just keep the Scots over there and we'll stay over here. All right, so that's, that's Ireland. But let's talk about St. Patrick. This is in County Antrim in Ireland. This mountain is, according to legend and with some degree of accuracy, where, I, where Patrick, Patricius, where Patrick herded sheep. Does everybody know the story of Patrick? Oh, all right. Okay, here you go. Patrick is not Irish. Hold on to your seat. Patrick is born in England... And his father is sort of a mid-level churchman. We would call him a deacon. And probably in the northern part up here. Patrick goes to church, mildly interested by his own admission. He's asleep. We don't think about it today, but there are no policemen. At this point in early 400s, the Roman legions had been pulled back from England to come home to guard the home city of, of Rome. It's like pulling our troops out of Afghanistan kind of mentality. All right. So with the descent of law and order getting wilder and wilder, you have pirates and brigands and people of all kinds of unsavory nature 
roaming around. Patrick is 16 years old, asleep in his bed at night, and all of a sudden is woken up, yanked out of bed, blankets and stuff thrown over his head, and the next thing he knows is he's on a boat back to Ireland to be sold as a slave. Slavers would make forays into the countryside, capture people, and sell them. So Patrick now ends up a slave for six years herding sheep out here day and night, winter in Ireland. He begins to pray, has a dream eventually, after about six years, of some guys in a boat and has this urge to go find them, having no idea where that is. He finds a, makes his way to the shore, finds indeed a boat, and this boat is loaded with some animals that ends up in France. As he gets away from there, gets back home, pursues some theology education, has another dream where he believes the Spirit of God is saying, we want you to return to Ireland, your place of slavery, and to evangelize the people. He's obedient. He does that and lives the rest of his life in Ireland. He's captured when he's 16. He says, leave for the ship. Goes back to England. Dream vision beckoning back to Ireland. He confronts and battles the Celts and Druid priests. It's hard to separate fact from fiction, but it seems that he had some real knockdown battles with the forces of evil, very similar to um, Elijah. Elijah and the, pre- and the priests of Baal. Right. He converts kings and commoners alike. And there are some ruins of the various churches. He, by the end of 600, all of Ireland has become Christian. Patrick had a, a zeal for the written word as well as the spoken provocative uh, word. And he had his monks and others in the monasteries copying not only the scriptures, but the ancient documents of what we would say classical Greece and Rome, thus keeping Western civilization alive. That's simplistic, I know, from a historical standpoint, but it really is true. Was he himself responsible for keeping civilization? No, of course not. Lots of people were involved. But give the man due credit for who he was. And imagine living there. You have tiny stone houses in the Irish North Sea in February. Think about it. Now, Columba is an Irishman. He was born in Ireland. These are his years. And there's a picture of some of what Scotland looks like. He was born, he was trained by the monks and priests who had been in turn influenced, evangelized by Patrick. Around 563, he and 12 companions head north 
to evangelize the Picts. They evangelized and established churches. They founded the Abbey of Iona as a base of operations. They had hundreds of converts among the pagans and in turn sent missionaries to Britain and Europe. This is part of Columbus Church that's still standing. And this, um, where this Abbey of Iona, some of you have been to Europe. Have you been there? But that's what it looks like. And uh, let me go back just a second. Iona is a tiny little island right about there. And that's what the abbey looks like. And that's from standing inside the country out toward the sea. If you go out on the sea, you can barely see it right there. Two, two different shots of it. So we have a spiritual heritage with these men and women who've gone before us. And remember that our church history is this one great majestic train of believers. All of us sinful that the Lord Jesus died for, but it goes back individually all the way back to the cross. And I hope you've gained some appreciation for the effort, the fervency, the majesty of what God has done. The kingdom of God is partially visible, but largely invisible. And we've just touched on a part of the visible. And... You know, someday the curtain, so to speak, will be pulled back and we'll see the majesty of what God has done.